Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Beth Smolko, president of the American Academy of PAs. Dr. Smolko is also a nationally recognized speaker and author on topics in telemedicine, including legislative barriers and access to care issues. Dr. Smolko's passion for accessible, effective, and compassionate patient care led her to found a nonprofit called The Heart of Medicine, dedicated to delivering primary care to poor and underserved communities. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Risi, for having me on the program today. Thanks. Well, I'd love to just start, you know, it's COVID and everyone is kind of, I think, kind of doing their best. So just how are you doing? How's your family doing right now? Thank you so much for asking. We are doing okay. I did have COVID last year in April. In fact, a long hauler that is slowly recovering. It was interesting to see Dr. Fauci call out post-acute sequela for COVID the other day. So a lot of people are still recovering many months afterwards. For those that may not know the phrase long hauler, do you mind just explaining what that is? Mm -hmm. There's many of us, about 30% of the population who had symptomatic, whether it's mild, moderate, or severe COVID, have continuing symptoms. Some research has shown up to like nine months or more. So we're still counting because we still don't know the complexity and how long this will last. Thanks for sharing that. My heart goes out to you and obviously hope you have a full recovery in in the long scope of things. But it's interesting as we learn more and more about this disease, there are so many wrinkles and nuances and things that kind of get missed as we kind of paint things with a single brush. And I think pointing out the fact that these symptoms can last a long, long time is good for people to know. Thank you. You know, I'm, I'm curious, you have such an interesting background and, and obviously you're on the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of things like telemedicine. And you also have this kind of deep, deep passion for things like how to get good care out to communities that may not be able to get that care. Can you just maybe rewind for me and get back to the part where, how did you first get excited about healthcare? What was that first kind of initial spark for you? Well, growing up, my family didn't have really good health insurance. So I saw firsthand how a simple trip to the doctor would put my family in a very precarious financial situation. And that's if we could actually get to the doctor. So we had both cost and access issues. And it was definitely a driver for me wanting to be a healthcare provider and specifically in underserved communities. But even as a kid, I knew I wanted to go into medicine. I'm also a first-generation college student, so I didn't always see the path to get there nor did I have tools like medical role models, time management, financial resources to really know how to achieve my goals. But after college graduation, I was lucky enough to get a job working in a lab at NIH where I had great role models who fed my hunger for science and really helped me grow in confidence. I took some graduate classes, but the further I got into research, the more my desire for being around patients grew. And so I left NIH to get married and start a family. And despite the challenges of motherhood and academic studies, I decided to go back to school to become a PA. And my first day as a PA student was like falling in love. I was so excited to learn about medicine and I really knew that I had found my calling. That's incredible. And, and I'm just kind of trying to put myself in your shoes. So you said you, you didn't have a lot of mentors initially. 
And something got you excited about the NIH, like that part. How did that happen? Like, what, what, like, did you see a flyer? Or like, how did you even learn about the NIH? How, how did that work for you? <laughs> it's a great question because back in the days when we had newspapers, I literally circled this opportunity in a newspaper ad and applied to it. So I was very fortunate to get in there. <laughs> and then going for the NIH, I'm just imagining because I've never been at the NIH as, a, as an employer or anything like that, but like one thinks of a very research driven place. And so how did you go from being in that kind of milieu to then deciding to pursue a, a career as a PA? How did that happen? Well, I think for me, I just kept on noticing my, there's something called building 10 in the campus. And I was in building 37, where we were doing research with murine models for plasma cytomas, cancers, blood cancers. And I always felt this urge that I wanted to be in building 10 more so than building 37, just really wanting to connect with people. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And so you were curious about building 10, you, you decided to throw your hat in the ring and, and pursue this career. And, and then you're, you're now at like what I would think of as kind of the pinnacle. I mean, you're, you're the, the president of the American Academy of PA. So how did you get to that spot in your career? How did that work out? It started as a student. So I know you have a lot of students that follow you. So really it was me kind of stepping up as a leader in my class and being a student diversity rep for the Student Academy of PAs, and also then being chosen as the lead student representative for the family practice PAs in the country. So that kind of got me into this mode of leadership and gave me a lot of opportunities. I eventually moved all the way up to president of the family practice PAs and then onto the board of directors for the academy. And for those that may not know, do you mind just walking me through kind of what is the mission, the day-to-day? Like, what does that organization kind of feel like as you live and breathe it? Sure. The American Academy of PAs represents over 150,000 PAs in the U.S. who work in every medical specialty and setting. And our mission is really to lead the profession and empower our members to advance their careers and enhance patient health. Our vision is PAs transforming health through patient-centered team-based medical practice. And I would say the last year, at least to, to my knowledge, has been probably the most like drastic change the healthcare industry has seen, at least in a while. And how has that shaped the PA mission and also how people are training? You know, thinking about things like telehealth and, and working at distance and working across state borders and all that kind of stuff. In June, we actually, speaking of telehealth, the APA surveyed our members about the use of telemedicine. And the good news is that almost two out of three PAs said that they are currently using telemedicine. But prior to COVID, so our last survey before that was in February of 2020, and only one out of 10 were using it at that time, there were several challenges identified in the survey that providers, employers, and lawmakers have to work together to address. And they found that from as far as the PAs in the survey, connectivity issues for patients were a problem, comfort, familiarity, and on the provider side, reimbursement services, access to equipment, and education and training were a barrier to telemedicine. But these are all things that we can overcome, which is great because we see that growth in our our colleagues getting familiar with telemedicine and our patients too. That makes a lot of sense. Do you, do you feel like a lot of the PAs at this point that are not using telemedicine, do you think that they're folks that are likely to start using it or are they folks that probably at this point wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that for, for whatever reason? 
I would say that everybody will have a touch point with telemedicine regardless of your specialty. So we know even surgical PAs are doing their, you know, post-op and some pre-op visits online and via telehealth. So I think that we're going to continue seeing this touch every specialty. And so soon you'll see 10 out of 10 of those PAs actually doing that. So now this question is is very selfish in nature. And I'll tell you, I'm I'm a telemedicine clinician. I I do telemedicine. What, What are some of the things that you think most telemedicine clinicians don't know, but should know? Like, what are some of the best practices, things that that I might listen to in a minute and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't do that. That's right. I need to do that immediately. <laughs> what, what are some of those things? Well, I think that depending on the situation. So when we think about even healthcare organizations as a whole, we need to make sure everybody understands telehealth technology, at least for the sake of patient care and workflows. Having that alignment from top to bottom, from the person who's, you know, kind of controlling the whole umbrella to the bottom, that patient, that end user really helps ensure everybody within the organization understands when and how telehealth can be deployed from one patient to the next and can proactively flag opportunities to bring a patient into the use of telehealth for their care. And you can create this friendly, very patient-friendly digital front door. And I love that phrase. A patient shouldn't have to find telehealth within their organization. Rather, routine workflows and accessing care should present telehealth as an option wherever and whenever possible. A thoughtful digital front door has multiple benefits as well. Access to telehealth, of course, but also more effective channel routing can help ensure a patient is connected to the right care, the right provider at the right time in the right place. So this can help take some of our guesswork out of patients electing to access care and ensuring that they're choosing the right entry point consistent with their care needs. Internal and ongoing system reviews should be used to identify where telehealth is functioning well and where an opportunity exists to make it better. Organizations should really define exactly how and when telehealth is expected to play a role in clinical care. Certain medical conditions might be identified as very clear opportunities for telehealth, and an organization can seek to proactively shift care related to these conditions into a telehealth environment. And so whether it's mental health or you know a low-complexity acute visit, like a sinus infection, organizations should be really clear about where they expect a given condition to be managed under routine circumstances and track success in achieving it. So for me, it's about having a really good understanding of where that modality exists in how we practice medicine and what's appropriate and what's not. And so that the patient really never has to guess. It's a really good point in terms of like triaging certain conditions and certain situations. And the one that jumps out right now, especially with COVID, is mental health conditions, right? So yeah, I'm thinking of depression and anxiety. Are there data points that show that telehealth performs as well, maybe even better than a standard visit for certain types of conditions? Maybe the ones that I mentioned, maybe maybe other ones. Are there any examples that we have that we can already point to and be like, that proves that telemedicine is is effective? I'll be honest with you, I'm blanking on exact numbers right now, but certainly There's data points that aren't collected, I would say, is more important in some ways, especially when it comes to behavioral health. 
When we think of the stigma, especially in certain vulnerable populations, about seeking out behavioral health care, we've actually seen that COVID directly, not indirectly always, but directly creates some mental health issues. There's a lot more of it going around and less and less access. So the data that's not being collected, perhaps, is the stigma on certain communities and the fact that it's a lot easier for you to perhaps express yourself when you're not worried about your neighbors seeing you go into somebody's office and you can make have all of those discussions in the comfort of your home and a, a place that's safe to you, perhaps. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the points you brought up earlier in terms of your personal story is you mentioned, I believe, accessibility. Mm-hmm. You said, you know, when you're growing up, accessibility was kind of a challenge. Do you mind speaking to that? Only because I think that that word sometimes means different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And so I often think of, like for me personally, I think of accessibility as tied into economics, like maybe not being able to pay for a visit or not being able to take time off of work so you can go in for a visit because that, that you need the work money and the employment money. So what does accessibility mean outside of just money? Like what are the other barriers to accessibility and how does telemedicine help to resolve some of these issues? The accessibility issues vary from geography, whether that's lack of access to care within a rural community to what it might look like accessibility-wise in a city where you might not have a car to get from point A to point B. We certainly see that access issue for people that want to go get a vaccine, but it's at a stadium that's outside of a city and they don't have a car to get there. But for access when it comes to telemedicine and telehealth in general, I think of the fact that 80% of the population, whether you're black, brown, or white, typically have a cell phone with access to a provider. And that percentage is so much lower for a laptop and other kind of technologies. But that cell phone, that one access point kind of brings us together. And also it gives us this general leveling of or great equalizer is what I've called it in telemedicine and the healthcare provision, because everybody has the same access point into really great healthcare. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I think that that number would just likely go up over time, you know, as more and more people kind of use and get used to their cell phones. And it kind of makes me think, you know, going back to what you're saying with AAPA, like how does AAPA or other organizations like that, that you may be working with, how do they think about cell phone usage or training clinicians to be more adept on their cell phones or to text with patients maybe? Or, you know, how do they, is that part of the strategic focus for the coming years? And, and if so, like, how does that roll in? Well, we definitely have created CME content to help providers actually focus on, on both safety, security, and really understanding what are the appropriate things to be addressing during a a telemedicine visit. I think that's really understanding the scope of telemedicine or virtual visits is so important. So we have created a lot of educational content so that they can know what that looks like. And just texting a patient might not be the most secure way to handle it, but having a secure platform that the patient and you can actually interact is better for everybody involved. That makes a lot of sense. And, And I imagine that there's a lot of training around how to maintain security and balancing that against ease of use, right? Like it, it may be very convenient to like, we're just thinking out loud to you know, hop on a call or, or to text or to send, you know, there are a hundred ways to send a direct message nowadays, like WhatsApp and, and whatnot, and which ones are appropriate, and which ones are not and things like that. 
I guess going back to COVID then, what what is in store for us in the coming months or years? Like, what do we expect, especially for PAs, like what do we expect their scope of practice to look like maybe two years from now that maybe is quite different from what it was two years ago? Like, are there certain things that have really changed and, and are unlikely to ever change back? Well, I think there's two, definitely two parts to that, right? So what is changing and more broadly is that telehealth is this broad universe of technologies and approaches to care from synchronous video-based encounters to remote patient monitoring, asynchronous and mHealth technology. The full suite of telehealth technologies is really just starting to scale. And mHealth and RPM or remote patient monitoring has enormous potential for growth and scaling to meet individual and population level patient health needs proactively and intelligently. Telehealth is enabling the integration of multiple various data sets and is really helping drive the conversation on healthcare interoperability. Additionally, new and expanding reimbursement for this type of care is creating new incentives and driving additional investment in technologies in the mHealth and RPM space as well. I think that we also need to consider the growth of video-based care is driving that expansion to meet needs, like whether they be a point-of-care telehealth kiosk in a grocery store or pharmacies to remote physical exam devices, you know, something just pressed on your chest or look in your ear through self-conducted physical exams with the use of artificial intelligence and patient-friendly guidance and technology. Also, the expansion of 5G networks is shifting the conversation on data networks and data exchange. And there's been a lot more automation and clinical algorithms that have come online enabled by telehealth. And that isn't to say that telehealth is replacing clinicians, but that telehealth Technologies are being used to digest complicated patient information through AI and machine learning and natural language processing to support clinical workflows and strengthen diagnosis and treatment plans. Asynchronous clinical workflows have also grown dramatically in their scope and competency, and complex diagnoses and treatment plans can be proposed based on patient data submissions paired with the intelligent evidence-based clinical algorithms and machine learning. And this creates that efficiency within a, a care system that enables a single clinician or clinical team to care for more patients more competently and effectively. So COVID has really helped unshackle a lot of the constraints in the telehealth space by aligning legislators, payers, and healthcare organizations relatively. And that alignment is sparking additional innovation and growth in telehealth technologies that will improve on the quality of care delivered in the space, in the healthcare system more broadly, and improve patient outcomes. If we go back to what it means to PAs, I think that it's going to be guiding a lot of the legislative changes that you and I were kind of talking about before that are going to really going to have to start naming PAs as telehealth providers in uh, state laws and regulations. And so we really look to how that's going to be transforming over time. Right now, we need to really focus on origination sites. How do we make compact licenses more available uh, across the United States so that we can actually help in a crisis situation like what happened in Texas just a couple of weeks ago? We had ice storms in Texas, you know, and wouldn't it have been great if somebody in California could just as easily 
just said, and there were executive orders, just I'm giving an example, but if someone in, in California could just say, hey, you know, I'm able to pick up and do this telemedicine. If somebody's able to do a telemedicine visit, I could pick that up. You know, if we treated this more, we had less variation from state to state in telehealth laws, man, what a difference that would make to access to care. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. I mean, and hopefully we'll see more and more of that, more flexibility across state lines. It seems logical that if you're trained as a PA and, you know, in, let's say Connecticut, you should be able to take care of someone in neighboring Rhode Island. It just seems very odd that that, that wouldn't be the case just normally. I'm curious also, like, about international borders. Do you ever see, you mentioned the, the crisis in Texas. You know, with COVID, we've seen many countries come under crisis. Is there any precedence for French clinicians to be able to help out in Italy when Italy was slammed or countries being able to kind of help with one another, like Canada helping to step in if the U.S. is under crisis or vice versa, us helping Canada out there. Is, is there any precedence at all for cross-country collaborations like that in times of crisis? I think that's a really great question. I don't have an example for you where that has happened via telemedicine outside of the employer space, where we have seen employer space telemedicine kind of crossing borders. But really, most of the time that has been more in person, at least what I've experienced and seen, as opposed to going via telemedicine. But I certainly would love to be able to use telemedicine in Haiti, where I have, I run clinics because I want to be able to check on my patients, you know, throughout the year, as opposed to just when I can get there to serve them. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it, it kind of builds this idea that you could have a clinic that's well-connected and therefore gets you access to professionals around the world. I mean, just a, mm-hmm. a beautiful idea. One of the core tenets of, of osmosis is that we, we try to see ourselves as a continually learning organization and we have a lot of students out there. I'd love to just have you teach us something, maybe a knowledge gap that you've identified that a lot of people have, something that would help fill in that gap. And it could be on any topic that you think makes sense. So for any of my students that will listen, they know that I'm really passionate about our profession. But the one gap that I see pretty universally is a lack of understanding about PA, the model of PA education, whether it's a a patient or a provider. And our education was actually developed by physicians. And those physicians made sure that we had the required knowledge to safely and effectively treat patients. We don't learn less about medicine than any other healthcare provider. We just do it in a different time frame. Physicians were and still are actively involved in PA program accreditation and sit on committees for our our very robust national certification exam. PA students are often in class all day long, every day, without breaks in their schedules, so no winter breaks or summer breaks. And this allows us to teach 100-plus graduate credits in two to three years. It's very difficult, but the teaching model works, and PAs have over 50 years and hundreds of millions of patient encounters to prove that it works. I appreciate you making that the teaching point. I decided to kind of better understand the PA profession myself and took it upon myself to learn about the pants and the pan ray. And, and as I was doing that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is remarkable. And, I, and it was disappointing to me that I hadn't learned earlier in my career about how the PA program is set up because I feel like there's so much that, not just MDs, but 
DOs, NPs, like other professions could learn from how PAs have established their training and hopefully adopt a lot of those principles because they're obviously very effective. Thank you. So maybe a final point then is a lot of our students are coming out during COVID and it's such a, let's call it a, a wacky time where the ground feels like it's shifting every week. <laughs> things are better. Now we have variants. Things are worse. Like it's just now we have vaccine. Things are better. It just feels like there's up and down news every day. What advice would you have for someone that's coming out? Your personal story is just so inspiring. I mean, you've worked at these profoundly well-known organizations and institutions and you're the president of the AAPA. And what advice would you have for someone young that's coming through and saying, like, how can I have that sort of career for myself? What, what would you say to that person? Well, I would tell students particularly that if they choose to be a PA, the U.S. News and World Report recently said that they would be choosing the very best job in the United States. I love our academic preparation. Our lateral mobility is not really emphasized enough. I think, you know, we have to train and, you know, get educated no matter where we go. That's it's not a you can just slide from one position to the next But the fact that we don't have alphabet soup after our name really allows us to be able to move from endocrinology to gastroenterology and other places. There's great opportunities for PAs, particularly in leadership and healthcare organizations, as I've seen, and the ability to provide medical care where it is needed most. PAs are medical experts that continue to grow throughout their career. We don't stop learning when we graduate. So when challenges like the pandemic come along, as a PA, you are able to flex within the healthcare system to meet patient care needs where they arise. If you're a PA student currently, you will soon be on the front lines of a very different medical world than when you started. Make sure you get the experience in virtual visits. Read a journal article every single day after graduation and never stop learning. Your patients are depending on your medical expertise and your compassion. So bring it every single day. That's a phenomenal message. I appreciate you you ending on that note. It's very, very inspiring. I want to thank you, Dr. Smalko, for being with us today. Thank you so much, Rishi. I really appreciate the opportunity. Well, I'm Dr. Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.